0: Good afternoon, everybody. For those of you who watched the uh, Taheri's film, congratulations for surviving the two hours. And I hope you managed to refresh in a bit, a little bit after film, and then now you have uh, energy to welcome Professor Armando Salvatore from Mageo University, where uh, Izutsu used to teach. And I, I'm Dr. Hatsuki Aishima from the National Museum of Ethnology. Uh, because we invited the Professor Salvatore in the context of a workshop, uh, neither near nor far, I would just like to introduce briefly Professor Salvatore before he starts his paper. Many of us who work on modern Islam has been deeply indebted to Professor Salvatore's first monograph, which he think is I shouldn't introduce, but I must because I, I'm one of the people who are really indebted to his work, Islam and Political Discourse of Modernity, that was in 1997. And then he has uh, written several works since then, but the recent one would be The Sociology of Islam, Knowledge, Power, and Civility which came out from Blackwell in 2016. And last year, he has uh, completed editing the 10 years, The really Blackwell History of Islam, which came out last summer. For years, he has taught and researched at Humboldt University Berlin, Naples Orientale in Italy, and National University of Singapore, Leipzig University, and so on and so forth. However, it is the first time Professor Armando Salvatore is giving a lecture at uh, Middle East Center, St. this yes, College, so please welcome him.
1: I'm really honored to be hosted by the Middle East Center tonight in this Trinity Term lecture series and uh, even more, I should say, I'm uh, really delighted to contribute to this uh, project which has been lasting for a couple of years and uh, in the workshop neither near nor far. Again, the Middle East Center, Professor Mignon and uh, Professor Aishima and um, Professor Nishio from the uh, Center for Modern Middle East Studies of uh, Mimpaku in Japan. Even more honored to be actually an external member of this uh, Center for Modern Middle East Studies, of National Museum of Ethnology. Uh, once we would have said a corresponding member, a member from the outside. And of course, part of this um, collective effort of uh, reviving the legacy of Doshiko Izutsu, which is both a scholarly legacy and a, an intellectual legacy. Actually, the support I received from, uh, from Mimpaku goes much beyond hosting my talk tonight, because in a visit in Japan a few weeks ago, I mean, Professor Nishi and Professor Oshima were helpful in facilitating contact with some of the key characters that we uh, see in the movie, as well we saw in the movie. And uh, we had a fantastic meeting with the, the Emeritus um, Abbot of the Nara Temple, Kose Morimoto. And uh, actually I have to express my thanks also to um, the colleagues from Keio University that Professor Ishima was able to put me in touch to uh, Professor Shinomoto in particular, who is uh, maybe the main administrator of the Izutsu legacy at Keio University in Tokyo, which was the university where uh, Izutsu was active before he um, went to McGill thanks to him, again, I was able to talk to Eske Wakamatsu. And I think that Eske Wakamatsu is really the author, the character, I mean, the scholar and intellectual who, um, I have to say, has helped revive this heritage of, uh, of Izutsu. I mean, I, I was really attentively and uh, appreciatively listening to the letter, to the uh, message of uh, Masuta Heri, but I think that there is um, much more concerted and converging effort from Iran, from Japan, and also from, uh, from other parts of the world, including McGill in Canada to uh, reinterpret, in a way not to you know to enshrine this legacy but just to make it the source for new ideas concerning even methods, not just the analysis of text but also methodologies within um, comparative religion and Islamic studies. So um, I'm very much in the spirit I have to say for those of you who have watched the movie that I think that the most impressive contributions um, in this um, sequence of interviews were those of uh, Nadir Ardalan with this uh, Iranian-American architect who had these beautiful words about the aesthetic value of nothingness, of uh, non being, and, and Jean Hof, who was the translator into English of the biography written by Eske Wakamatsu. And then I had the pleasure also to, um, not just to correspond, but also to talk in person with uh, Jean Hof, who is a scholar of Japan and also a scholar of uh, classic antiquities. And this link between Japan and classic Greek and thought is um, actually one of the elements of Izutsu's biography that I would like to emphasize here. So I remember that also the Emeritus Abbot of Nara uh, Escom- uh, Kosei Morimoto he was remembering the visit of, of Izutsu and, uh, and Ardalan to the temple of Nara in the mid-late 1970s. So I think the relation between Izutsu and Ardalan was one of the most beautiful, actually, from the point of view which goes even beyond the scholarly and intellectual level. That really would cement this kind of uh, uh, East-East axis, if you want. But not to forget, I mean, Ardalan is also a business person, as an architect, a prestigious architect, who's speaking from uh, Naples, Florida, and like um, I'm coming from Naples, uh, Italy, actually. So uh, this uh, shows to situate uh, Izutsu in this global intellectual field uh, or map is something that really requires a collective effort and a collective dialogue. And I think that the personality of Izutsu stands out throughout the 20th century for, stradd- for straddling multiple borders with my code, the academic study of uh, cultural and religious traditions, in a way that made him also aware, lucidly aware, that the global impact of Western thought on those various traditions and civilizations and the way they are studied and communicated is really, was really becoming, through his career in life and particularly through this very important decade, which were the 1970s, open to very different and contentious interpretations. For example, less than one year before the beginning of the revolutionary events in Iran in October 1977, he participated in a conference conference in Tehran, which was titled Can the Global Impact of Western Thought Allow for a Real Dialogue Among Civilizations? And symptomatically, significantly, at that conference, he gave a paper in English titled It's a very enigmatic title, and the paper has not been published. It was just uh, Beyond Dialogue at Zen Point of View. So this already shows that the personality and the originality of Izutsu goes even beyond what we saw in the movie. And I think that for him, a key problem was um, not just the academic power and more generally the definitional power of the West over the East and we will revisit the, I mean, the, the controversial notion of Oriental philosophy that also the movie tries to address. I think that pressure, which we are familiar with, also because of course of uh, of USA's Orientalism, is something that Izutsu was in a way also transcending with this idea of a comparative philosophy of uh, religion. And I would say, just by way of introduction, that Izutsu's scholarly trajectory uh, is original exactly for being resistant to the type of uh, quite facile genealogical deconstruction of kids. Western categories, including religion, which came uh, en vogue in the 1970s and uh, is still very much at the center of the attention nowadays. So it was more on a kind of reconstructive journey. The idea was to engage in an ongoing conceptual reconstruction of a variety of traditions and their key concepts and and even methods, and by putting Islam at the center of this um, map. And more than that, he was keenly aware that no academic or intellectual fashion can authentically reflect the linguistic originality and the cultural diversity that ground various traditions. And you can already see a big difference between him and the traditionalist and perennialist school, which was also another of the topics that the documentary film was uh, touching upon but probably not delving into very very deeply. I would like to start with um, some aspects of this growing up and the fact that he was educated to an austere Zen discipline, and also the art of calligraphy by his father, and the way that the father was trying to teach him not to trust words, and the way the young Toshi Izutsu proved to be recalcitrant to this uh, teaching. Yet, at the same time, this early experience with Zen meditation, with the Zen paradoxical riddles, the koan, pushed him, by way of contrast, towards studying Greek thought, I mean, the classical Greek thought, and in particular, to engage the Greek notion of Theoria. So this is something that of course the movie is not particularly interested in uh, illustrating, but this uh, interest and even obsession with this Greek notion of Theoria should be explained here, because the meaning of Theoria is not theory, actually, or at least not just what we nowadays commonly understand by theory. It meant something close to vision and contemplation. And as a teenager, as a privileged teenager, we have to say because he came from a wealthy family, at the age of 13, he was taught classical Greek by a private tutor. This was in 1927, and this was exactly 10 years before he encountered Islam. This was a very important precedent, as we will see. The movie told us that Greece is the cradle of the West, and Izutsu had a different opinion on that. But around that time, something else happened, and this was also shown by the movie. He enrolled in the reputed Christian Methodist uh, Oyamaga Queen Middle School in Tokyo. Uh, which later became also a university. And his initial experience with Christianity was not easy. So we have a kind of uh, bifurcation here, an attraction toward Greek philosophy, and a difficult relationship, with, if you want, with the Abrahamic prophetic religions. So we saw that this this word of ancient biblical prophets did not make much sense to him initially, and it actually made him sick. Uh, And yet, the first time, and this is uh, something that uh, Wakamatsu shows uh, vividly in his biography, the first time Izutsu read the Gospel of John, he was enthralled by the well-known incipient of the Gospel that says, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. Izutsu recalled this moment of surprise and excitement, so of true revelation, even said. This is something that Wakamatsu called Izutsu's uh, ua elibnus, so Izutsu's foundational experience that pushed him to study Greek thought and learn classical Greek. Clearly, the first foreign language he was exposed to was classical Chinese, from uh, not only Buddhist but also Confucian texts that his father ordered him to read. But at the same time, Izutsu was developing this interest in uh, Greek thought and also the, the conflicted relationship with the Abrahamic prophecy. And all this overlaid his fatherly Zen education, that. He never completely rejected it. I mean otherwise he would not have uh, given that paper in 1977 I was talking about at the beginning. <laughs> Isuzu did not start this venture as a color of religion actually, he was attracted from, by the power of language. So it was uh, beginning a journey into understanding the linguistic magic, magic as it were, the linguistic magic of the di- divine word its creative power. And this is the journey that will soon lead him to the study of the Quran. Of course, there are a lot of anecdotes about how he uh, met these leading uh, Muslim scholars, and this is clearly uh, very uh, useful stuff to know. But there is an intense engagement with languages that uh, is prior to that particular encounter. And, And because he understood very early that language is not just expressive, it is itself revelatory. So studying Revelation, technically speaking, studying Revelation became soon and quite naturally for him a privileged field of linguistic analysis. So he was a linguist. He was a a scholar of languages. At the same time, he was charmed, he was enthralled by the structural difference among languages. So this is again something that puts him at a distance from the traditionalist and perennialist school. And Now, however, it is true that we have also to revisit the question of the, as it were, geocultural dimension, this scholarly journey. Because uh, the beginning is to embrace Greece and Greek thought not as the cradle of the West, as it was said in the movie, erroneously, in my view, but actually as the beginning of what Izutsu will call the Orient, or what he later called even the spiritual Orient. And incidentally, after learning Chinese and Greek, he avidly learned Russian at 17, also, and Hebrew during his uh, university years, which clearly prepared him to this uh, momentous encounter with Arabic, uh, with the Quran, and with, of course, the character of Prophet Muhammad at the age of 23, still very young. This happened in 1937, when, as we saw, he met the Tatar scholar and activist Abdu Rashid Ibrahim, who became his first teacher of both Arabic and the Quran. And then his second teacher was another Tatar scholar, Musa Jarullah, one of the leading Muslim reformers and intellectuals of the age. As clarified by several scholars, including Seljuk Esenber, both of them were key characters of the Tatar diaspora that, after the collapse of the Russian and Ottoman empires, spread around Eurasia and were particularly active in founding transnational press organs in Turkish and Arabic, at the same time opposing Republican and secularist Turkey. So it seems that the degree of the involvement of these characters in the Japanese Spanish policies of the age is still object of conflicted assessments. And in the same way, the role played by the young Izutsu in these entanglements is clearly still debated. It's uh, quite controversial. I mean, it, I mean, the movie is less reticent about this than the biography written by Eske Wakamatsu. But let's try to revisit this kind of... Uh, this kind of entanglement. Zutsu initially was attracted, was initiated to Arabic and the Quran during a moment which was actually probably the height, the late 1930s, which was the height of a surge of interest in Islam within Japanese government circles and intellectual milieus. A big mosque was uh, inaugurated in Tokyo, quite solemnly, the 12th of May, 1938. It was supported both by the Japanese government and by leading companies, especially Mitsubishi and of course with the active help of many members of the Muslim diaspora. And informatically on a political level the mosque was inaugurated in the presence of uh, representatives of countries like fascist Italy, Saudi Arabia, uh, Republican China, uh, but not Republican Turkey. So it's clearly a political event in the climate, in the political um, climate of the age. Arabic itself, not just the study of Islam in Japan, was certainly promoted from above in those years. And as stressed by uh, Hans Martin Kramer uh, in a recent article uh, on the uh, Quran translations into Japanese, at that time there was a kind of a wider and, according to him, genuine intellectual interest in Japan, which was actually coming up from below as well, and which was also decisive in making this opening to Islam something more than just a political move by military circles and corporate interests. So I, th- I think that the assessment of this particular moment in history and the uh, reasons for the rise of interest in Islam is particularly crucial. Clearly, all this was integral to the rise of Panasianism. But according to Kramer, the interest in Islam was also nourished by a kind of cultural curiosity that was relatively autonomous from these highest spheres of military and imperial politics, and also capitalist global capitalist strategies of uh, Japanese corporations. What is What, what was interesting uh, from this point of view and Certainly affected uh, Izutsu was that Islam seemed to have a cultural appeal that invited its appropriation through explicitly Japanese cultural lenses. Even going a little bit beyond what the uh, movie says, um, and actually. Uh, remembering what uh, Wakamatsu says in his biography, um, actually the the character of Shumei Okawa is, is really crucial. I mean, and the relationship between uh, Izutsu and Shumei Okawa needs to be assessed as part of this um, surge of interest, because these were two very, you know, in a way, charismatic persons. So Shumei Okawa of Shin Asia, which was the journal that was uh, representing probably the most important Pan-Asianist think tank of the age, now, Okawa is well known for um, being, uh, becoming the only civilian to be prosecuted by the Allies as a Class A war criminal after World War II. So that, that's heavy stuff, we can say. At the same time, he was, he was being hallowed as a champion of the struggle against imperialism by a leader of the non-aligned movement like uh, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru. So uh, when Nehru visited uh, Japan in the 1950s, was on a state visit, he wanted to, to see Okawa on his deathbed, by the way. Uh, indeed, Okawa first embraced in his youth a, a completely different idea, which was the idea of uh, what was called a seikai-jin, complete cosmopolitanism, even tinted with socialism, only to shift to right-wing pan-Asianism after reading, and this is also symptomatic, after reading Sir Henry Cotton's New India, or Indian Transition, which supported Indian anti-colonial Nationalism. I mean, uh, beginning of uh, Indian anti-colonial nationalism. So for Okawa, leaders like Gandhi and Nehru represented the resurgence of Asia against Western imperialism. Islam played, in this context, a particularly strategic role, which um, was, uh, maybe, it was like a force that could transcend and oppose the world of nation-states hegemonized by Western imperialism. And now, I mean, on the top of this, we, we get this kind of cosmopolitan pan-Islamic program or outlook of characters, like the two Tatar mentors of Izutsu, which clearly nicely overlaid the approach of Okawa. So, in a way, pan-Asianism needed pan-Islamism, and this was a concern, a continuous concern, for allied Western interests until the end of World War II, as one can glean also from documents of the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which is uh, basically the predecessor to CIA, which uh, till at least the summer of 1944 were analyzing and also in a way that was sending an alarm, documents that were titled like Japanese infiltrations among Muslims in China, among Muslims in Russia, or among Muslims throughout the world. So, this is clearly a good chunk of uh, geopolitics, and this is a clearly a clearly uh, dangerous uh, liaison, a uh, liaison dangereux that Yang Isuzu got involved with. Curiously, however, what happens with the Izutsu here, according to Wakamatsu, is that actually Izutsu was probably the one uh, who influenced Okawa rather than the other way around. Izutsu was probably influencing Okawa to the effect that he saw Islam as not just the religion of the Arabs, but the outcome of multiple religious encounters. In this, in this sense, he saw Islam as a, as a key representative of the spirituality of the Orient of, uh, or Asia. In his earliest books on Islam, which is, was titled um, The History of Arab Thought, Arabia Shisoshi, Izutsu stressed that Islam was able to absorb Greek thought, first of all, I mean, and we see the link to what was, uh, was said before, but also key ideas originating from within Indian and Zoroastrian traditions. So Wakamatsu is, com- is convinced that, in spite of his young age, Isuzu influenced Okawa much more than the other way around. Okay, I don't, we don't know whether this is good or bad. On the other hand, I mean, clearly Okawa was the was the was the bad guy here. I mean, the one who was playing geopolitics in a very heavy terms. I mean, with regard to uh, military circles and would be more criminal. And and in a way, Okawa, we should not forget, was styling himself successfully and globally as a kind of anti-Orientalist avant la lettre. So this is a very complicated type of uh, relationship. So, but if we, we have to synthesize this view, based also what, what uh, Wakamatsu writes, Izutsu became quite early and quite quickly a champion of the promotion of a view of Islam through non-Western eyes, non-Orientalist eyes, non-imperialist eyes, and maybe even anti-imperialist eyes. A view of Islam, and this is uh, something that should be recalled, as the most legitimate successor to Greek thought and to Hebrew prophecy, which is usually what, what the West usually claims. I mean, So Islam is expressing a unique type of ecumenic universalism, particularly by the character of Muhammad, which was the key object of Isuzu's analysis over those years. He also authored the biography of Muhammad. And here, the Orient is not just what lies east of the West and becomes its easy colonial prey. It is the hub of the civilizational world which could also, in a way, impregnate Latin Christendom from the Middle Age onwards, after the Latin West absorbed the Greek arab heritage and, and so that in a way islam provided to izutsu from that moment on a paradigm for the way the orient what he himself called the orient oriental thought oriental philosophy toyo tetsukaku does not just resist the west but gently absorbs or even silently infiltrates and ultimately encompasses it. So it wasn't, wasn't into uh, dichotomizing, and this is something that I think Bahman Zakipur also said in the movie. On the other hand, Izutsu's vision was not blindly geopolitical. I mean, the movie at the end uh, tries this kind of uh, exercise of seeing whether this uh, this kind of philosophy, Oriental philosophy, could translate into, into geopolitics, and uh, clearly it could not, but this was not the interest of Izutsu. It could not, of course, uh, during the war and it could not after the war, until the 1970s, and uh, with his involvement in, uh, um, in Iran. So I think that this is here that the metaphor of the Middle Earth comes into play. So um, Isuzu's vision was not geopolitical, it was kind of visionary. It was based on mapping Islam spiritually and intellectually onto what was the Middle Earth of his own vision of global humanity. So as you know, Middle Earth is, uh, is the centerpiece of, uh, of Tolkien's uh, fantasy landscape. And, and, and it played um, a central role in, in Tolkien's vision and narrative. So the land of the Middle, the Middle of the Earth, was where the seeds of hope were implanted, where uh, salvation was nested, even in dire times, in dire and challenging times. So izutsu Tolkien once was very explicitly in, the, in translating his fantasy landscape into geopolitics. And once he said, "Quote: The Middle Earth is Europe." Well, for izutsu the Middle Earth was was the Middle East. I mean, so that and its spiritual and intellectual powerhouse was. Islam, originating from Muhammad's prophecy. So Isuzu was probably giving shape to this Japanese fascination with Islam from a non-governmental, even non-political perspective. And this uh, kind of fascination, whether genuine or, or naive, was expressed through a longing for a type of uh, Abrahamic spirituality and culture, which was not tainted with the Western imperial will to power. Of course, there was another very strong imperial will to power that was uh, unfolding in those years, which was the Japanese one. But Isuzu didn't care. And especially he was appreciating this kind of Abrahamic spirituality from a Japanese perspective because it was able to absorb Greek thought, what he liked so much, this notion of theoria, without, this is important, without making Greece the contentious cradle of an exclusivist Westernist cultural superiority. So we see so many shades, I mean, in this type of uh, appropriation of the Orient. The Orient that starts in Greece, so when he started to learn Arabic and his uh, connections to those uh, two Tatar scholars um, in 1937 was also uh, the same year when he first lectured on Greek thought at the, at the Keio University in, in Tokyo. This is uh, something that um, needs to be added to the narrative that we were previously exposed to uh, while watching the movie. And also, it's very important to see how it shifted from this initial focus on Quran and Muhammad's prophecy very early towards an interest in uh, Ibn Arabi, after reading Asin Palacios' Islamic Eschatology and the Divine Comedy, and something that he did in 1939, just two years after his first exposure to uh, Arabic and Islam. So that the two things, I mean, is uh, even lecturing on Greek philosophy and this uh, study of Islam were unfolding uh, in parallel to each other. So his first essay on Ibn Arabi was Published as early as 1944, but probably there is still something which we need to grasp uh, a little bit better about this link between ancient Greece, including this idea of uh, vision, contemplation, theoria, and um, this various genre in Islam, tassawwuf, falsafa, uh, also kalam, that he started to study very, very early. So uh, I think that if you if you Greek philosophers, including or even especially the Presocratics, not just as thinkers but as activists. So he viewed them as almost precursors, as as initiators of the social political impetus of of, uh, mystical transgressive movements. And then, I mean, but the prototype of all this, I mean, the best characterization of this type of impulse, he did continue to see, to identify in uh, Prophet Muhammad himself, and, of course, in what is always uh, Muhammad's successors among the scholars, philosophers, and even more among the Sufi masters and intellectuals. So in a way, and this is something that Wakamatsu, the biographer, is very, very, is very keen to stress, Izutsu was uh, deeply impressed by how both the ancient Greeks and the Muslims took salvation very seriously as, a, as the essence of humanity itself. It's a, almost a non-soteriological, I would say, idea of, uh, of salvation and of, uh, of a prophetic message. That's not by chance that his first important English language work that really put him on the on the global map, the global scholarly field, was, uh, was a work which was uh, very theoretical and had nothing to do with Islam, actually nothing to do also with Greek philosophy. It was quickly mentioned in the movie, it was Language and Magic, an extremely sophisticated work which was published in 1956 in English, and it um, and was actually followed three years later by a second English language book, but this time on Islam, which was titled The Structure of the Ethical Terms in the Quran, A Study in Semantics. So now it was present on the global map of Islamic studies, and this attracted the attention of uh, Wilfred Cantor Smith at the time when Smith was himself laboring and working on what be- became his best-known book, which is The Meaning and End of Religion, uh, published in 1962. And this is the point where I'm adding some stuff, from my own research, also in the archives at McGill. So, trying to understand why the hell you two went to McGill and what, what was the role played by McGill in this, in this, uh, in this trajectory, in this um, venture, in this intellectual and spiritual venture. Now, clearly, Smith was a key person in this move. Who was Smith? I mean, we know something about Wilfred Cantwell Smith, about um, his early critique of the notion of religion, of the reification of the notion of religion, but who was he? He was a kind of a enfant British from Toronto, Canada, who earned his PhD from Princeton with a work on Islam in the modern world. I mean, quite clear as the title. Um, but his background was uh, that he was ordained as a Presbyterian minister and um, even travelled quite early to the Middle East, actually to Egypt. This was the first country he was travelling to because he was Presbyterian, but his mother was Methodist. I mean, he was um, himself engaged in missionary work, so was his mother, so he was seeing his missionary work in pre-partition South Asia in a quite political way. I mean, so it's a, so it was a a quite sui generis type of missionary. If it is true, and it seems to be true, that he was actually uh, a co-founder of the Communist Party of Punjab. This is Wilfrid Cantwell Smith. So then, not by chance, a Job as a missionary was withdrawn from, uh, from that particular Presbyterian Church in Toronto that was sponsoring him. And this is why Smith became a full-fledged scholar and he became the Burke's Chair of Comparative Religion, the Faculty of Divinity of McGill in 1949 49, at the age of 33, quite young. He was actually two years younger than Izutsu, and, and he soon engaged in a work on Islam that uh, wanted to be truly dialogic, because he was also uh, a, a harsh critic of, uh, of British imperialism and colonialism. Actually, he first uh, was a PhD student in, in Cambridge, but his PhD was rejected because it was very critical of British uh, imperialism and colonialism. You can already see some, some convergence between these two characters. But the idea of, uh, of making the work on Islam truly dialogic by Smith, Um, was intended from the beginning as remedying to the limits of uh, both Eurocentric religious comparativism and also of Islamic studies as the Western objectifying study of Islam and Muslims. So, I mean, the intentions were very good, actually, and in a way really converging with some elements of Izutu's interest uh, in Islam that we just saw. Now in 1952 Smith created founded the Institute of Islamic Studies at McGill out of a rib of what was at the time the Faculty of Divinity. And he did so with the support of the Rockefeller Foundation which is not bad for, not bad for a former communist so Wilfred me of course he became, I mean, he had, there was a change there clearly I mean his, 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 his brother was actually also a Marxist and communist he was posted in Moscow during the, the purges of, of Stalin's times and clearly they, I mean they, they shifted I mean both he and his brother but uh, on the scholarly side, Smith literally invented the North American version of Islamic studies in a climate which was clearly a climate of Cold War influenced. Cold War influenced institutional initiatives at the academic level as well. So clearly, founding and funding the IIS, which is the acronym for, for the Institute of Islamic Studies, only one one S short of ISIS. Founding and funding IIS was a move quite in line with the, with this academic climate, which was clearly heavily uh, influenced by Cold War imperatives. However the IAS was not the typical American area studies enterprise. Mm-hmm. So Smith uh, really wanted uh, to help Muslims to modernize their faith. I mean, this was uh, very much his words, not mine. And he did so by investing into the idea of a kind of heuristic and methodological dialogue among scholars. So this the IAS wanted to be just that. So this was not just a bland and theological-oriented kind of interfaith dialogue, but a dialogue on method between two categories of scholars, one category where the scholars were practicing the Muslim faith, and the other category are scholars who are not practicing the Muslim faith. Again, this is his vocabulary, not mine. In an essay, uh, was in a chapter which was published recently in a book titled Ways of Knowing Muslim Cultures and Societies' Studies in Honor of Gudrun Kramer, anthropologist Dale Eichelman appears as the author of an essay a title, a, cha- a chapter titled The Underneath of Academic Life This is um, an interesting essay because Eichelman reveals that he joined the IAS as a graduate student exactly at the time when, uh, when Izutsu went there, so he also met Izutsu by the way, but he doesn't uh, speak about that in this essay but what he reveals is that when he joined the IAS in the early 1960s as a graduate student, now I'm quoting the composition of the student body was almost unique to the institute So when the Institute had sufficient funds, the goal was to recruit 30 graduate students per year. Of these, 14 were Christian. 14 Muslim, one Jew and one social scientist. By the way, he says I think that I fell into the latter category I mean, so, so do I, by, by the way So, so there is a, something that goes uh, beyond Islam itself within Smith's idea of dialogue So the, he really wanted to make uh, the study of Islam no longer tied tra- with Eurocentric or Christocentric perspectives. And he was in, attracting to IS leading Muslim scholars like uh, the Pakistani Fazlur Rahman and the Palestinian Ismail Raja Faruqi and, and at some point, it became the sponsor of Izutsu. And why? Well, first of all, we saw already that Smith had already this kind of clever plus one approach. So so the big plus one, not this time, came from, uh, from outside the Western fold, from outside the Abrahamic fold, but came also outside of any conventional disciplinary area that one might have associated at the time with the study of Islam and modernity. This is really, really remarkable. Because remember, Izutsu was a a scholar, a scholar of languages, mainly, a linguist. So Smith scouted and attracted the Isuzu to McGill through a stubborn uh, and not always easy uh, courtship, at the time when Izutsu was already reco- recognized as a key asset uh, by Keio University, in, 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 sorry in Tokyo, and and Keio University really did not want to let him go. I mean, it was that uh, <laughs> was not an easy accomplishment by Smith. And by that time, in the early 1960s, I think. I mean, this is this is more uh, as a kind of inference. Uh, I'm reading through the lines. I mean, of this correspondence uh, between these two characters and other stuff. So Smith. Might have started to see the risk that this uh, idea of dialogue was doomed. I mean this kind of Christian-Muslim dialogue plus one plus one. So he might have started to see the risk of the kind of short circuit between Euro-American ideas and methods uh, on one end, and what he himself saw as a kind of intellectual and spiritual power of the, the Irano-Semitic area, or uh, what we call the Middle East. So he might have started to see the pitfalls of this uh, scholarly dialogue underlying IRS. He might have seen the danger of, of this uh, mutually mirroring game of uh, gauging and critiquing relations, similarities, and divergences between the Latin West, Latin Christianity on the one end, and the Middle East, and the wider Islamic realm on the other. So he wanted just to break through this um, project that was uh, maybe starting to crumble. So he wanted really to uh, play a new card, I mean, and make the study of Islam really open to a kind of approach which is different from old style Orientalism, but also from old style comparative religion. So this, this was a kind of self feeding, self referential loop that he thought Izutsu might break. And clearly, Izutsu's um, linguistically gifted analysis of uh, Quranic keywords and conceptual networks seemed to. Uh, promised to do exactly that. And so when when Smith was writing his main work which is The Meaning and End of Religion he was really explicitly seeking Izutsu's advice. I mean, after all, it was Smith was uh, working and laboring on this notion of religion and trying to deconstruct it, but but he was also trapped within this uh, Western notion of religion. So Izutsu might have been the kind of unique joker, a wild car in uh, in expanding and breaking through the this, this stale scholarly dialogue and also deprovincializing it from from this uh, short circuit. He wanted to make this dialogue truly global. And the only problem is that during the time at McGill and after that um, the Izutsu card went even wilder than Smith could anticipate. So uh, Izutsu became a very autonomous player. One probably anecdotal part of this entanglement is that so Izutsu was granted himself a grant to travel through um, different countries starting from the Middle East and through Europe and finally North America. I mean the sequence of this grant that was um, also mentioned in the movie, also coming from the Rockefeller Foundation, was uh, he went to Egypt, then Syria, Turkey, Germany, France, England, Oxford, Canada, McGill, and U.S. Harvard. Remarkably, this was the first journey ever Isuzu undertook outside of Japan, so which he started at the age of 45. It seems that you know, in order to become truly cosmopolitan, you'd, you'd better stay at home for a while. <laughs> you don't venture out of <laughs> your country, by the way. But it's uh, remarkable that not only the awarding letter by the Rockefeller Foundation presented him as a scholar of languages. It's not that, you know, Rockefeller Foundation was very interested in this kind of uh, Cold War humanities, as it were. So what, what, what kind of linguists uh, do, I mean, to help that kind of project? And in spite of that, he got this uh, scholarship as a as a scholar of languages, as an expert in linguistics. But also, curiously, this is how Smith introduced Izutsu to Sir Hamilton Gibb, which was perhaps the very embodiment of old-style Orientalism, before Izutsu visited Gibb at Oxford. Because interestingly, in the letter, Smith wanted to reassure Gibb, saying that this uh, gifted Japanese scholar of language of languages was way better than those Oxford philosophers of language. I don't know if he, he meant Wittgenstein. I don't know. But also so much better than those weird American behavioralists. And one other aspect which is really remarkable in this context is, okay, Smith was trying to get the best out of Izutsu when he was completing his manuscript on the meaning and end of religion. And clearly, the ambition of Smith was not just to focus on on Abrahamic religion. So he was starting to pick Izutsu's brain on uh, on East Asian uh, religions and traditions, because uh, he suspected, Smith, that maybe the notion of religion over there is slightly different. I mean, it's not really matching the Abrahamic notion of religion. And this was the time when Smith was becoming obsessed with this own theory that was called the strong adjective and weak name theory of religion and being religious so the idea was based on Smith's view that religion as a noun is weak it doesn't it's incommensurable it's it cannot it cannot be used for comparison among various traditions okay but he was convinced that the adjective religious being religious is most is almost like you know the importance of being Islamic you know in, the, in for him it was the importance of being religious I mean the adjective was important he thought that the adjective religious covers individual religiosity individual faith and this was a strong concept which is much more suitable to facilitate comparison and among several traditions. Clearly, Izutsu said, actually, you know, it it doesn't really work like that. Because Smith asked him what happens in East Asia. And then Izutsu said, look, he was doing this very gently. Very elegantly, but he was also very sharp and far from reticent in telling Smith, without risking, without fearing to risk offending his uh, his, his newly found and certainly very powerful global academic sponsor. So Izutsu told Smith that actually this distinction between strong adjective and weak name, religious versus religion, made little or no sense from an East Asian perspective. So basically Zutsu at this point stands out as somebody who was a completely different concept and take than Smith and probably than anybody else in this kind of Western study of uh, comparative religion on the question of the mutual translation and commensurability among the key concepts of different religious traditions. Interestingly, when he published the structure of ethical terms of the Quran in 1959, I mean right before starting his uh, journey. Izutsu wrote that um, he saw his own book as a, quote, a case study of semantic sociology or semantic hermeneutics of civilization, unquote. More than a study of the Quran, per se. I think that was an extraordinary innovation for the Orientalist method of the time, but also for the Orientalist specialization on what we call Islam as such. So instead of applying methodology, methodologies of text criticism to Islamic materials, the Qur'an became for him the main terrain for producing an original method of analysis, which one could also, in principle, apply elsewhere, both East and West of Islam. Now, I mean, we come to the, I mean, one of the... There are two final chunks we, um, we also saw in the movie, the uh, Tehran branch of IAS, and then what happened after Izutsu went back to Japan. Clearly, Izutsu was bringing such ideas to the intellectual life of McGill's Tehran branch, I mean, McGill's IAS Tehran branch. It was clearly the leader of this branch and and decisively contributed to the institutional goals of this operation of this venture and um, I would like to add something to that because we, we talked about geopolitics only about the 1930s in Japan and then we uh, we talked a bit also about this kind of uh, Cold War involvement I mean, of uh, Islamic and Middle East studies in, the, in North America. But there is something happening here as well. So the opening of the branch didn't just happen because Izutsu wanted to study with Muhaqiq and wanted to work with him on those uh, texts. I mean, it was something. something. So it required really long and difficult negotiations at several levels within McGill, uh, between McGill and Iranian authorities, between McGill and potential funders. So they even involved direct talks between the IAS director of uh, of the time, Charles Adams, and the Shah of Iran, personally. So the Shah visited McGill's IAS twice, in 1965 on the occasion of a state visit to Canada and 1967 on the occasion of the World Expo in Montreal. So not surprisingly among very first fierce uh, protests by students. So 1967 was just one year before 1968. The IS nowadays uh, still details with pride on its website the story uh, and also the accomplishments of this Tehran branch. It's true that Muhakek cooperated with Isuzu in Tehran, particularly on editing and sometimes also introducing, annotating, and translating classical Persian texts published in the series. Silcila Idanishi Irani, Wisdom of Persia, okay? And some of these texts, by the way, have been digitized and are freely accessible through the IAS website today, if you are interested. And Izutsu clearly was, was devoting most of his work power to this branch. He was allowed to stay there for more than half of the year. In that sense, he was really instrumental in establishing a strategic cooperation between the West and the Middle East, within Islamic studies, just to put it bluntly. But as the movie showed, I mean, in, th- in that sense, the movie really tells the truth, the result was uh, actually something else. I mean, the, uh, apart from these pontifiable um, accomplishments in terms of, of uh, editing texts, I mean, the result intellectually, and even in a way politically, was a strengthening of the East-East relationships between the core and the hub of the Middle East, you know, Iran and East Asia. Under the umbrella of what Isutsu, and this is uh, important to revisit, and this is my, the last part of my talk, because that's also a very controversial intellectual question, what Izutsu started to call a metaphilosophy of Oriental thought. So there is something that goes beyond discrete non-Western traditions that can be reconstructed in the form of a meta-philosophy, making all these thinkers and uh, ideas contemporaneous to us. I mean, this was said in the movie in a quite nice way. Interestingly, by the way, Izutsu started to talk about this meta-philosophy of Oriental thought before going to Tehran. So he started to talk about that during the kind of normal years at McGill, before the founding of the Tehran branch, so Izutsu was already very conscious of, uh, of the way his project can take advantage of of this mutual involvement between the West and the Middle East. So in a way, the founding of the Tehran branch was certainly the expression of a pattern of uh of academic cooperation that we might even call the Cold War humanities. You know, there was a talk about Cold War social sciences. Okay, this is an example of Cold War humanities. I mean, making deals with the Shah. So there are leading Western academic administrators in charge of institutes and programs negotiating directly with high administrators and even royalties from the Middle East with the goal of opening up spaces and opportunities for research and influence in the region. Okay, Izutsu was clearly part of that. He was the leader of this Tehran branch. In a way, we might even uh, think uh, think that he was uh, used for that type of project, right? On the other hand, Izutsu was already working at his own ideas, I mean, trying to develop this meta-philosophy of oriental thought. So by the time of the opening of the Tehran branch, Izutsu was already a global superstar, and he had started to be a regular lecturer at the prestigious, uh, if controversial, Eranos meetings we saw uh taking place every august in ascona switzerland in tandem with scholar who from 1975 became also his colleague at this imperial Iranian Academy, Henri Corbin, and other characters, other also controversial characters like uh, Mircea Eliade and uh, Gershom Sholem. I think this needs to be said in order to deflate the hyperbole that Izutsu went to Iran just because of the attraction and blessings of Iranian Islamic scholarship and culture. So while such a state of grace may actually have materialized uh, and also enriched Izutsu's own um, trajectory and stay in Iran, I think that Izutsu did need a footing in Iran to crown his own approach to Islam as the Middle Earth of his own project of Oriental philosophy. And McGill did provide him this footing. As you can see, there are a lot of cross-currents here. It's very difficult to just uh, give a unilateral reading, saying this was instrumental to, to that and not the other way around. So in spite of the high politics involved in setting up the Tehran branch, Izutsu was able, in a way, to yeah, dictate his own personal conditions in the context of multiple global geopolitical entanglements. And even if it might be true, as Professor Sawai, who also appears in the movie, who has been in charge of directing um, a six-year project funded by the Institute of Education in Japan, on Izutsu's Oriental philosophy, even if it might be true what he said, what he said that Izutsu was never ever interested in politics. I mean, this is what what uh, Professor Sawayi really is convinced of. On the other hand, okay. maybe by not being interested in politics, Izutsu managed to gently but firmly turn the table on this kind of Cold War humanities that underlie the opening of this uh, IES Tehran branch. And in this sense, whether he wanted it or not, he w- was in a way the author of a political move. So Izutsu was never ever interested in uh, even alluding to the vocabulary of geopolitics to formulate his project of redesigning the map of global intellectual history by putting Islam at its center. He was certainly working on methods suitable to create this kind of direct East-East connections, particularly between Japan and Iran. And as I said, really the most beautiful characterization of what happened, Nadir Ardalan said. (laughs) So when they were in a way trying to understand how this idea of uh, of, mu, of uh, non-being, translates into beauty by visiting mosques in, is, um, in Iran, in Isfahan, and by visiting together also temples and gardens in, in Kyoto and surroundings in, in Japan. So this, w- this is probably the best example of this uh, how this project unfolded. So not by chance the most beautiful words in the movie are, in my opinion, those of Ardalan. Izutsu was very conscious of the inner diversity of what he called the Orient, uh, but long prior to the publication of Orientalism by by Isutsu was also keenly aware of the fact that the West had systematically appropriated the Orient to itself since the late Middle Ages, starting with Greece itself, I mean which was in a way westernized, and going into the building of Oriental Studies where obviously Arabic played a strategic role historically. So I understand that the project of uh, which this workshop is part wants also to verify whether knowledge transmission between the Middle East and East Asia was uh, mainly mediated by the West or not. And we can say that in the case of the operations of McGill's IIS Tehran branch, Shizutsu was able even to effect a kind of uh, Aikido-like move, namely to use the power of Western academia to promote a project that was basically alternative to the Western intent although probably not necessarily antagonistic to it. I mean, different but not antagonistic. So I'm not saying that, I don't know, just to use the vocabulary of, uh, of Tolkien, I mean, the imagination and the fantasy world of Tolkien, I'm not saying that uh, Frodo Izutsu had to be lured into, by the ring of uh, Sauron Smith to murder McGill in order to destroy the ring of Oriental scholarship. Of course, this would be too much to say, in order to liberate the spiritual Orient from the disciplinary straitjacket of Western Orientalist scholarship. So this was not so strategic as as in the uh, fantasy landscape of Tolkien's narrations. We can say, however, again, I mean, and this is um, by way of conclusion, um, to go back to the initial fascination of the Yangizutsu, that he was really trying to deconstruct this kind of Western logocentric power. I mean, this is the vocabulary also of the age in the 1970s, you know, Deleuze, Derrida. That the logos, the creative power of the word, which was also so important for Izutsu's foundational experience, this this kind of salvific logos was no longer to be considered the token of, uh, of a Western hierarchical and imperial discourse. So the power of the word could rather be gently won back to the sensibilities of an ever more kind of a fragmented but also ubiquitous Oriental thought. I mean, so it's not it's not a kind of uh, illusion that there can be some compact, unified Oriental philosophy. Actually, he was very aware of different. He was very aware of uh, fragmentation. So actually, this final trajectory of Izutsu unfolded quite consciously. Uh, in the middle of this run up to the well known western denunciation of logocentrism which is linked to the constructionism post structuralism and in particular also to the work of uh, of Jacques Derrida who once publicly engaged Izutsu by sending him an open letter that he just titled Lettre à mon ami japonais. So, so he took Izutsu seriously. Uh, and to Izutsu, this kind of West, Western deconstructionist impetus m- might have appeared as a kind of hype, a sideshow, a kind of the West just uh, wrestling with itself, you know, concealing the real question, so which was for him always the question of how language expressed uh, humanity or human consciousness, something that is so best developed in Islamic philosophy, if I might use the word, but also in uh, esoteric Buddhist philosophy, something that never appears in the movie. I mean, there is just some talk about Zen. But actually, this was uh, the last shore that Izutsu was moving towards, really, in his last years in Japan. So a kind of a reconciliation, in, I mean, in terms of what he saw as a kind of a structure, um, a synchronization of Oriental philosophy between Islamic philosophy and esoteric Buddhist philosophy. And this is exactly what was talked about, about nothingness and Mu, that becomes a kind of constructive force of history. So Izutsu relied on appreciating and analyzing, rather than simply deconstructing, this uh, incantatory and even revelatory function of language, of creating meaning. And clearly, I mean, I honestly have to say that at the beginning this idea of Oriental philosophy sounded very uh, suspicious to me, as as it does to many other observers. We might even have uh, perceived this as a kind of uh, weak, competitive self-orientalization in facing Western Orientalism. But it's interesting as Wakamatsu uh, shows that uh, towards the end of his life, and not unlike the so-called Kyoto School philosophers or thinkers, and Izutsu had also some, some relations with them in those years. Western philosophical ideas were clearly present, were always important.